Okay, good to see you all. Good evening. So um, for, I think all of you hopefully know this, but I'm gonna give a talk tonight um, as well as lead some sittings. Um, so if you were thinking it would just be a half hour meditation and that was it, uh, I apologize. I'm gonna mix things. I feel I'd like I, I, there's something I really wanna talk about. And I realize that it's possible that during the summer, um, once in a while, I might feel this way. And so I might uh, break the pattern and, and give talks from time to time. Um, so, um, so I wanna, the topic tonight is concentration and the role of concentration in practice. Uh, it's, um, it's not something that is um, radically new to this group. I've talked about it explicitly and I weave concentration into the various practices that we do. So it's not something that is totally new. Um, but I think it's something that I don't talk perhaps as much about as I have come to think I should. Um, and I think by the end of the evening, you'll understand why I think it might be worth paying a bit more attention to the role of concentration in meditation practice. Um, in any case, it's something I, I suddenly realized in the last week or so that I feel is actually really important, that it's something I've been neglecting a bit. Um, and so again, not new, but something that I think deserves more emphasis um, than I have been giving it um, on Tuesday nights. So, um, but it's also in, in a certain way, very simple topic. Um, concentration of all the different elements of practice, actually one of the simplest to explain. You just keep returning over and over again to something, whether it be a mantra, the breath, um, a phrase, whatever it is. So in, in some ways, it's actually much simpler to describe concentration practice than it is to describe some of the kinds of awareness practices that I've been doing uh, over the past few weeks. Um, but its connection to the whole realm of practice is actually complicated. And, um, and I think I, so, and that's what I wanna to touch on today is like, how does concentration fit in to practice as a whole, as I've been describing it. So it's not, it's not a new vision of practice. It's practice as I've been talking about it for the past two or three years. And yet um, I, I think I'm, I wanna say that maybe it's a bit more important part of practice than I had been suggesting in um, by how little attention I've given it. Um, so by the way, uh, I'm just so I can say, Jenna, can you hear me okay? Is the volume okay? Okay, great, thank you. So, um, so let's begin with a bit of sitting that is actually um, uh, the kind of practice that we've been doing. This is actually a little bit more extreme version of the non-concentration, just open awareness kind of practice we've been doing. I'm gonna actually um, put on the screen, share with you instructions for one version of this, which are taken from um, Barry Majid's Zen group. Um, Barry Majid is a Zen teacher and psychoanalyst in New York City. He is um, like my own teacher, Azra Beda, a student of Joko Beck, a Dharma heir 
of Joko Beck. Um, and, um, and this is how he describes how to meditate uh, on the webpage for his site, Ordinary Mind Zendo in New York City. They're wonderful instructions and I think exemplary of a particular way of thinking about practice, which I very much resonate with and is very much an expression of the kind of Zen practice at the Zen Center of San Diego and taught by Joko Beck. Um, so how to meditate? I'm just gonna read it for the sake of the people who are not on, on you know, are only gonna hear this on audio later. Um, and so just listen along. So how to meditate? It begins with the epigraph from Ehe Dogen, founder of Zen in Japan. Zazen is not a meditation technique. It is the Dharma gate of joyful ease. The quote above is how Dogen, a 13th century Zen teacher, describes shikantaza, or just sitting. What Dogen is pointing at is that Zazen is a complete experience of being for its own sake. It is not a means to an end. An interesting consequence of this is that you can't do Zazen right or wrong. All you're going to do is sit and experience whatever is going on. This means feeling whatever you feel emotionally or physically, think whatever you think, and just watch. There will be parts of your experience you want to and try to avoid, and parts you want to and try to cling to. Just watch that too. The only other instruction is to sit as still as you possibly can. If you have an itch, let it itch. If your foot falls asleep, let it tingle. If your back hurts, just let it hurt. We're not trying to be comfortable. We're just looking into the full range of our experience for its own sake. And that's it. That's all the instructions he gives for meditation, right? Um, and it's beautiful. And I, in many ways, I agree deeply with the vision of practice laid out in those very few number of words. Um, so um, let's do it for a bit, okay, as a way to start tonight. Um, so please just get in a comfortable position. I'm gonna start with just literally Barry's version of Joko's version of Zen. Then I'm going to incorporate a bit of um, some of the elements of awareness practice that I have, you know, introduced to the group um, in recent, you know, actually over the past couple of years, but especially focused on the recent weeks. But um, and so just you know, so I'll yeah tweak it into to my own particular flavor of this. But it's going to stay in this kind of just watch, just be aware. That's that's the essence of it. That's all there is. Okay. So please just sit in a dignified posture so that the breath can move freely in and out of the body. Just sit and know that you are sitting. Feel the breath come and go at its own rhythm. But importantly, you're not actually being asked to follow the breath. It's just part of your present experience. So, so something to notice, 
but not to focus narrowly upon. Just let it be there as part of what you feel, movement of the belly and the chest. Perhaps you feel air going in out of the nose. Feel the sensations in various parts of the body as they call to your awareness. And of course, part of your experience is gonna be your environment. So how does the air in the room feel on your skin? What sounds can you hear in the space around you? And of course, notice what you're thinking and feeling. Notice how some thoughts and feelings come and then go, while the other ones stay for a while and really hook you and perhaps carry you away to trains of thought or fantasy or emotion. See how you feel aversion to some things that are part of your experience, some sensations, some thoughts, some emotions, and see how at the same time you cling to others. As those instructions put it, just watch. And in a very deep way, there is no way to do this right or wrong. You're just sitting, experiencing. For those of you who are used to following the breath or doing something much more technical as you meditate, perhaps even notice the urge to turn this into an activity. Now let's transition into a slightly more focused version of this practice, but one that's still very similar to this kind of open awareness practice. 
So continue just being aware of what's in your experience, but to help your mind not completely fly away into fantasy and be lost for long stretches of time, try anchoring your awareness in the sensations of the breath, wherever it feels most natural and noticeable to follow the breath, it could be your nose, your chest or your belly. Just feel the breath. And then at the same time, open yourself up to sounds in the space around you. So you're using two different anchors, attending to sounds around you and the sensations of the breath. And in addition to that, just being aware, consistent with the instructions we started with of just what your experience consists of. The anchors are here just to help you stay present and not fly away into fantasy. Notice how when you do get caught up in thinking, it's very likely that you will no longer be able to hear the sounds around you. So the use of sounds and anchors is a really good check. If you can hear everything that's going on around you, chances are you are pretty present. And if you are not present and lost in thought, chances are you are not hearing much. So from time to time, check on how well you can hear what's around you. And now the last set of instructions I'm gonna to add to this is when you feel yourself carried away by thought, hooked by a thought or an emotion, say to yourself, thinking, thinking, or feeling, feeling, or anger, anger, some brief, simple notation that acknowledges that you have been carried away by thought or feeling, and then return to the anchors of breath and sound. Okay, so Feel free to keep sitting in the, this way if you like, but I'm just gonna speak for a bit and then we will try a different kind of meditation soon. So, you know, Barry's version of Zazen um, is really just radically open. It's just be aware, just notice what's going on. 
Um, and this is the kind, this is very, this is basically the kind of practice that Joko Beck advocated at Zen Center San Diego. It's also very similar to the kind of practice taught by Tony Packer, who was a Dharma heir of Philip Kapla Roshi at Rochester Zen Center. Both Tony and Joko um, were um, students trained in a very traditional, very rigorous form of Zen and both in Rinzai Zen, which use koans, you know, like what is Mu? Um, and Mu is essentially a intense form of concentration practice. You know, just focusing on Mu, almost like a mantra, like Mu, you know, Mu, Mu, right? Um, and uh, if you haven't ever read Philip Kaplow's description of his first Kensho or enlightenment experience, um, which took five years of like hardcore Zen training to achieve, um, you can find this in the book, Three Pillars of Zen. I recommend it. Um, and in one of the emails I sent out recently, I included the course packet for a class I'm teaching. And you can find Kaplow's um, Kensho account there, along with the account of his own teacher, Kohen Yamada Roshi. So I provided two different Kensho accounts in that course packet. They're very interesting. Um, but it makes clear that what um, what is going on when students train with a koan mu is really intense absorptive concentration practice. Um, as Kaplow says at one point, you know, there was no, I there wasn't me doing this or that. There was just mu. There was mu eating. There was mu working. There was no there was no difference between him and and students would stay up all night, you know, saying out loud, move, move deep from the belly. It's just becoming one with this, this word, um, this, this, this syllable. Um, anyway, so, um, so both Tony and Joko were products of a form of Zen training that put a premium on concentration. Um, and both turned radically away from those after receiving Dharma transmission from their own teachers. Um, Tony remained friends with uh, Philip Kaplow, but repudiated traditional Zen Buddhism and started to teach what she just called sort of awareness practice. And she's founded a, uh, a center called Springwater, which you can look up, it still exists, and you can do um, just awareness retreats there. Um, just, just open awareness. And there are lots of videos of Tony Packer leading guided meditations. And they're just like, listen to the sounds, just be aware, be aware of thoughts, you know, just, just don't try to do anything. Just, just be awake, just be aware. It's so simple, so powerful. And Joko did something very similar. Joko, um, turned away from his, her teacher, uh, Taizan Mazumi Roshi, who was the teacher at Zen Center, Los Angeles. Um, because what she started to see is that um, though he had very, very deep spiritual insights because of his own training, the kind of training that she had completed under his guidance, he also had many, many very obvious psychological shortcomings, um, which led to abusive relationships with his family and his students, unresolved alcohol, alcoholism, um, different forms of um, sort of... Uh, really unhealthy behaviors. And she started to think to herself, what exactly is the point of this training? If, if 
one can achieve what it offers you, which is deep spiritual realization. So she didn't deny that. She didn't say he was a fraud. She said, no, no, he has actually seen something profound. And yet he is kind of like, you know, um, I'm trying to find the right idiom. I mean, he, he had a lot of um, emotional, psychological issues that she felt were not only unresolved, but even in some ways unseen. Like he did not see them as issues to be resolved because the practice had not given him the tools um, to see them as a part of the path. And so this profoundly shaped, so she, she started to question like, so we, we, we push so hard for enlightenment experiences, thinking that this experience is somehow gonna change us and fundamentally make us better people. And she could see the experiences were real and yet people remained the same at some deep level afterwards. Um, they had glimpses. Uh, it, it's a little bit like the way that you would, could drop acid, you know, feel like you had this incredible life chain experience. And then a week later, you're just your old self again, right? It's just, it's just the same thing. She started to see the, as, as, that same way, like there are experiences that are real, powerful, and yet transient, right? And if the point of Buddhism is to actually alleviate our own suffering and the suffering of others, she started to see that this would require tools other than what she had been given in her own traditional form of training. Um, and so she was one of the pioneers of a highly psychologically informed form of Zen training that in many ways has become mainstream now. I think um, what she was doing was quite radical and controversial at the time, but it's actually become so normal. Like, I, I, I don't know almost of any sort of well-known Zen teacher or mindfulness teacher now who doesn't do something like what Joko was suggesting we do decades ago. But when she did it, she was really seen as, um, as rogue in many ways. Um, so um, in any case, my own teacher, Ezra Beta, um, was a, a student of um, Joko's and a, a, a peer of Barry Magid. So Barry, as you can see, I don't know him personally, and I haven't studied with him. So I think one thing that is really, really, that this is just a, a sign that's, that's worth keeping in mind. It's like what people say on paper, or even what people say in contexts like this, um, are not the whole picture. You, know, you cannot know really what is being given to a, a student um, in terms of Zen training, just by sort of um, looking at the words that a person writes in their books or, or says in their talks. So much of what's essential about um, genuine Zen training is happens in just the one-on-one -on -one interactions, both like in conversations about practice, but also just in ordinary life. Just when you are hanging out with someone, when you're having dinner with someone and you see the way that they interact with their food or with the, the, the let's say in their restaurant, the waiters or with, with the other people in their community. So much happens in that way. So you don't wanna overemphasize the words that, um, that, you, that uh, you attribute to someone. So in, to that extent, I don't wanna say that what I just read aloud from Barry's website epitomizes his version of Zazen, but it's clearly the one he decided to foreground, right? So that says something. In any case, it's consistent um, with what Joko was, was suggesting. But when Ezra came to uh, Zen Center in San Diego, 
he started to see something um, in the students there that, um, that made him think that Joko's hardcore aversion to any form of concentration practice um, was um, that there's a kind of gap in the training that the students at, at the center in San Diego were, were getting precisely because Joko was so averse to, to offering anything that resembled her traditional kind of Zen training, which focused on concentration. Um, so Joko would never say like, follow the breath, never say count the breath, never say anything that, um, because she saw so vividly how people could use that. This is a phrase that's also worth doing is to spiritually bypass their own psychological issues, right? So, you know, you have things that are starting to come up and you don't really want to deal with them. So you learn how to concentrate and you can blow through or basically just like sort of side um, swipe away stuff that you don't want to deal with. You know, you have emotional stuff coming up. So concentrate on the breath, just go back to the breath and you can develop incredibly powerful concentration so that literally no thought, no emotion can sort of unsettle you. Um, so, um, and she saw that that's very powerful and also very dangerous for people who actually have psychological issues that they should be looking at. So, um, so Ezra actually suggested that um, to Joko that she maybe make a little room for concentration because what he was seeing is that the kind of open awareness practice that she was giving people, um, it's hard to do that in a way that is conducive to growth when the mind is literally just all over the place. Like if you, if you, if there isn't so little stability in the mind that what is what you're experiencing when you look within is just the rushing, roaring stream where it's just, you know, what the, the Buddha is called the monkey mind jumping all over the place, you know. Um, you know, it's hard to be aware of that with any kind of clarity such that you can start to notice what kinds of scripts are actually running you. So it just becomes like an exercise in kind of frustration. You know, you sort of, you, you feel like you're putting the time, you have deep aspiration, you're sitting and yet like, it's not going anywhere. Like, why, why, why am I not feeling any more clear? about my mind? Why am I not feeling any more settled? Like where are the, when are the benefits going to show up, you know? Um, and so, um, so Ezra actually said, you know, maybe there's a little room for concentration to help stabilize the mind a bit. Um, and I think one thing to keep in mind with both Joko and Tony is that in their mature teaching years, both advocated just be aware. You don't need to do anything, just like what Barry was saying in that beautiful description of Shikantasa. And yet both of them had finished koan training. I mean, both of them had spent decades in the most hardcore form of training, right? And so of course they had achieved a certain level of mental stability so that you didn't need to do anything, but just look within. And when they looked within, what they would see is like, oh, I see this thought. I see actually the impulse to have this thought. I see how that thought stays for a bit. I see how it fades away. You know, you could start to, it's almost like, you know, for us, most of the time, it's 24 frames a second. It's just the illusion of continuous movement, right? It's the self, it's just the movie of the ego. For them having practice for that long, you could see the frames and perhaps you could even see 
the composition of the frames. Oh, how the lighting is that, you know, I mean, so they could see the details of the different constituent components that would make up the self. While without that kind of stability, person looking within would just, you know, it wouldn't be awareness of that. You might tell yourself, okay, I'm being aware of my thinking, but actually probably what you're doing is you're just thinking, you know, you're just like having that thought and then sort of telling yourself at the same time, um, okay, I'm, angry, angry, but I, man, you know, just, so it's like the, the line between being aware and actually just having a thought is very, very blurry when there's not that kind of stability. Okay. Um, and I'm speaking from experience. Okay. So I just, um, so brings me to the John Kabat-Zinn passage that I, I shared with you guys. And actually I mentioned that it came from the ZCSD, Zen Center San Diego, um, uh, service book because that says something like Ezra was actually able to convince Joko that it was worth including in the service book you know and it is something that's actually taught there and so I'm going to read this again for the benefit of the people who are listening on audio it's not that long um and it's so just listen just you don't have to um read along with me but it's John Cabot's in on concentration you can think of concentration as the capacity of the mind to sustain an unwavering attention on one object of observation. It is cultivated by tending to one thing, such as the breath, and just limiting one's focus to that. In Sanskrit, concentration is called samadhi, or one-pointedness. Samadhi is developed and deepened by continually bringing the attention back to the breath every time it wanders. When practicing strictly concentrative forms of meditation, we purposely refrain from any efforts to inquire into areas such as where the mind went when it wandered off. And this is the key difference, right? So when you're practicing straight up concentration, you're just over and over going back to the anchor. You're not saying thinking, thinking. You're not saying having a thought, I wish that person would drop dead. You know, you're not noting, you're not labeling, you're not cataloging what kind of scripts or beliefs are going through your mind. You're just returning over and over again to whatever the anchor is, like the breath. And so this is a thing that worried Joko, right? Um, so, um, but anyway, going on. Our energy is directed solely toward experiencing this breath coming in, this breath going out, or some other single object of attention. With extended practice, the mind tends to become better and better at staying on the breath, or noticing even the earliest impulse to become distracted by something else, neither resisting its pull in the first place and staying on the breath, or quickly returning to it. A calmness develops with intensive concentration practice that has a remarkably stable quality to it. It is steadfast, pronounced, profound, sorry, hard to disturb, no matter what comes up. It is a great gift to oneself to be able periodically to cultivate samadhi over an extended period of time. This is most readily accomplished on long silent meditation retreats when one can withdraw from the world a la Thoreau for this very purpose. Stability and calmness which come with one-pointed concentration practice form the foundation for the cultivation of mindfulness. This is one of the key thoughts I want to return to. So samadhi or concentration is traditionally and in reality understood to be the foundation of strong mindfulness practice, right? Without some degree of samadhi, your mindfulness will not be very strong. You can only look deeply into something if you can sustain your looking without being constantly thrown off by distractions or by the agitation of your own mind. 
the deeper your concentration, the deeper the potential for mindfulness. And then this last paragraph um, of the Kabat-Zinn then gives voice to the worry that explains why Joko was worried about, okay, concentration can be of great value, but can also be seriously limiting. If you become seduced by the pleasant quality of this inner experience, you come to see it as a refuge from life in an unpleasant, unsatisfactory world. You might be tempted to avoid the messiness of daily living for the tranquility of stillness and peacefulness. This, of course, would be attachment to stillness. And like any strong attachment, it leads to delusion. It arrests development and short circuits the cultivation of wisdom. And that's a good definition of spiritual bypassing. Right. So um, some of you, or I think most of you are probably familiar with like um, the kind of mindfulness training taught by the folks at Insight Meditation Society and Spirit Rock, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salisbury, people like that. Um, so that form of mindfulness practice comes from Southeast Asia, Theravadan Buddhism. And traditionally in that form of Buddhism, one practices jhana training or concentration training for a long time until you achieve deep stability before practicing mindfulness. Um, in the modern era, and not just because Americans are trying to learn it, but even in Southeast Asia, teachers started to sort of fold concentration into the mindfulness training. Because if you practice awareness enough, like in the way we've been doing it, for example, right? Like, you know, follow the breath, notice what thoughts come up, label them and come back to the breath. You will develop concentration. So it's not like we have not been doing concentration practice. We have, it's just been a gentler version of it. And so um, Vipassana meditation took the path of saying, okay, let's not make people do years of jhana or concentration training. Let's just start them off with mindfulness, satipatthana, right? And then as they um, start to, you know, as, as they gain mindfulness, they will also gain powers of concentration. So they all feed into each other. But this is actually not the traditional path. The traditional path actually develops concentration first and uses that stable base as the ground for mindfulness training. So mindfulness without concentration is just really different than mindfulness with. If you have concentration, you can see more clearly what thoughts are pulling you away, right? Because you aren't, you have the ability not to be pulled away by the thought. So you can feel the tug of desire, feel the tug of aversion. It can say, having a thought, I don't like this. Having a thought, I'm angry about this, right? and actually see the thought rather than identify with it. So not be so pulled away. And so it gives you clarity. That's one huge thing that having concentration enables you to, to experience when you're practicing mindfulness. Um, the other is, and this is um, I think even more important, well, they're both important, but one is as you start to feel less pulled away and 
and I don't I actually don't even know how to explain this theoretically. And maybe there's no, there's no need to. You almost start to see the mental experience at a finer, finer grain levels. You know, you start to see not just that you're having an angry thought that's playing away, but you start to see the components that make up that thought and how actually that thought that seemed like just an angry thought was actually maybe a series of 10 different thoughts that you, you know, like first is like maybe feeling fear, then feeling alone, then feeling anger. You, know, you start to sort of notice a component, starting to feel the different parts of the body tense up, start to feel the pattern of muscular activation, all this stuff. So the interesting thing is as you get more kind of stability, you also get a more textured sort of awareness of what it is that the stream of thought actually looks like when you're not identifying with thought. So both those things together just deepen through the clarity um, and therefore the liberatory power of the kind of mindfulness, right? So, um, so anyway, okay. We've been doing this. Again, this is not something we haven't been doing, right? I mean, this is like, there is very rarely a meditation that I leave that does not involve at least one or two anchors, right? Breath or sounds um, or something else. And body scans are also different ways of developing concentration as you move through the body. So this is, so I'm not suggesting that actually we have not been doing this. We have been. But what I've come to wonder is whether or not there may not be some so really important benefits from giving more explicit attention to concentration practice and actually a specific form of concentration practice. Um, ones which involve sort of inner verbalizations when we are, um, when we're actually sort of like counting breath or saying breathing in, breathing out or in now or rising and falling. Um, so I, I want to explain a little bit. Um, actually, no, let's do it. It's enough talk. It's, sorry, it's a lot of talk for a while. Let's do it for a bit, okay? So um, I'm going to lead us through two different variations, okay? Um, so we're just sitting, and we're just going to follow the breath. Um, and the first sort of two different types of meditation we do involve using phrases, Breathing in, I know that I'm breathing in. Uh, breathing out, I know that I'm breathing out. So it's one, it's a Gotha verse that Thich Nhat Hanh's community uses a lot, okay. Um, and then we'll just do in, out, or rising and falling, which is the type that's often taught um, at IMS to, to beginner medita meditators. Okay, so we're gonna do that. And then we're gonna do the very traditional form of um, Zen concentration practice, which is counting breaths on the exhale. So one to 10. Okay, so, so nothing radical, nothing um, that I think a number of you haven't, but we're just gonna try it. And, um, for, and for those of you who haven't done these before, it'll be, I really, I'm eager to introduce you to these simple practice, simple but powerful ones. So please get in a comfy position, again, dignified, upright, firm backside and a soft front side a front side open and soft so that the breath can move freely. 
feel the breath moving in and out of the body at its own rhythm. And just notice where in your own experience the breath feels most pronounced. For some of you may feel the breath most clearly in the nose, some of you in the chest region, and some of you in the belly. And just attend to the breath wherever it feels easiest to attend to, nose, chest, or belly. And as you breathe in and out, just use this simple gatha or two-line verse to accompany your breath. Breathing in, I know I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I know that I'm breathing out. So as you feel the breath coming in, breathing in, I know that I'm breathing in. I'm breathing out. I know I'm breathing out. So feel the sensations of the breath and just accompany that with the mental verse to keep your awareness on the breath. And for all of these versions or variations we're gonna do during this sitting, if thoughts or emotions pull you away, just don't worry about noting or labeling, just gently pull your awareness back to the breath. And now, if you are following the breath in your nose, accompany each in-breath with a simple notation in, and each out-breath with a simple notation out. This note is a simple one, almost like a whisper to yourself in your mind. Accompany your awareness of the sensations of the breath in the nose. And if you're following the breath in your chest or your belly, instead of in and out, you can use rising and falling, rising and falling.
Now please continue following the sensations of the breath. But instead of using these words, with each exhalation, count one and then two. So for each exhalation, just one number, one. And then the next exhalation, two. And then all the way up to 10. And if you lose your count, or perhaps lose track and end up at the number 15 or 16, then just start back at one. So counting each exhalation with a number, one through 10. So as you count, notice how when you are carried away by thoughts, it affects the clarity of the sound of the numbers. It's like when you lost track of the sounds in the environment when you were thinking, right? Thoughts in your mind will make it harder to say and to hear these numbers. Just notice the quality of the interference produced by thinking with the counting and just keep returning to the breath and the count. Some people like to just count the number once, pronounce the number silently once to themselves, like one, somewhere in the middle or at the end of the out-breath. Some people like to say the number repeatedly, like one, 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 almost like an inner mantra using the number. Either one's fine, and maybe there's a different variation that actually feels natural to you. Don't worry about there being one right way to use a number. Use a number in whatever way feels natural, most effective for you. Okay, so um, I'm going to keep talking just for the sake of time, um, but the practice is so simple. I encourage you to try these for longer stretches on your own. Um, and in fact, one of the things I'm going to suggest is it might be really, really beneficial to maybe even devote like 15, 20, 30 minutes a day 
to um, a concentration practice along with a standard mindfulness practice. Um, also, actually, I'll throw this out there in case I forget later, the counting can be really useful when walking. So like, um, you know, maybe like what I've been doing is with every time my right or left foot touches the ground, you know, like, so I'll just pick right for a particular walk. Um, I'll just say one, one, one on for each out breath. And then two, two, two. It's a really wonderful way to turn a walking meditation into a kind of a, um, period of concentration practice. But the one that's softer, because, you know, obviously you're not, you know, you're, you're still aware of the, of, of the world around you. And so um, in any case, those two variations on this are really um, just wonderful, simple things to incorporate into the day. And my guess is that they will produce um, positive changes in all your other practices, whatever ones you're doing, loving kindness, mindfulness, whatever other practices you do. Um, so, um, okay, so there are, I think, interesting benefits to using inner verbalizations. So obviously you can just follow the breath by following the sensations of the breath. Um, and that is a really traditional form of concentration practice. Um, and some people might even say counting is like a more rudimentary, you know, more basic version. That's what you get the super beginners, right? Um, I actually think it's worth doing at least from time to time, because I don't know who ever said that humans can't actually multitask, but I think they're lying. Um, I think they're wrong. I don't know about you guys, but I can multitask just fine, especially when I'm meditating. I can follow my breath, think I'm following my breath, even think I'm noting thoughts, and yet just be like thinking <laughs> in the background, you know, just like, nah, 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 you know, maybe thinking about how the meditation is going or whatever else, you know. So, um, so counting doesn't, there's no magic cure for anything. Okay. I said, just, just, okay, just make this clear. But what counting does is it produces a kind of check. You know, it's like, okay, so if I'm really here, I'm following the breath, how the hell can I not get past five? <laughs> you know, before I lose count. Or, or even in the way the numbers sound internally, right? You, because I don't know if you experienced it, this is a pretty short period, but there are times where the numbers will just sound really clear. You know, the mind will feel clear and you'll just hear one, two. But there are other times where you feel like, the part of your mind that's trying to count is also trying to think, you know, it's like, it was almost like you're creating interference on the same band, you know, bandwidth or something like, it's like, you're trying to say one, but then like the, the inner voice also wants to think about this or that, you know? And, um, and so that static is actually really illuminating. So it's not a bad thing. It's actually like a really good thing, right? It helps you notice, oh, wait, there's something going on in there that, and what's so interesting is, is doing this helps you see how there can be so many levels of thinking that are really going, going full bore that you are not even aware of, right? That, that just are below the level of consciousness. And this is a practice that helps bring it maybe just above the threshold of awareness because it produces static, you know, either because you realize you're losing the count or because actually the part of the mind that is trying to count is also feeling pulled into a kind of verbalized thinking of some kind as well. So um, it's one of the reasons why I think actually like the verbalization, even though it may sound really basic, can be really, really like helpful. And um, and so maybe you don't feel like you need to, but once in a while, check, just see, 
you know, and it's been interesting to me to see how there are times where I felt like practice is really clear. And then I try following the breath in this way and feel like actually like, wow, my focus, my concentration wasn't nearly as, as clear as I thought it was, you know, and it was just, it was a, it was a good kind of just a check. Um, so there are a couple things I want to just say now, in addition to all this, which is that when you, if you, if you're new to this kind of practice, it's not uncommon and it is normal for it to feel a little bit uh, like, I don't know what the right word is, effortful or even tension producing at first tight, you know, um, and because it is a more effortful form of practice, a more focused form of practice than we are used to doing, especially in this group. Um, and what I would say is it's like anything that you practice that you're not comfortable yet with, like a dance move or a move in sports or a musical instrument, right? Um, whenever you do something new, it will feel effortful. There will be more effort involved than is necessary. And you might even feel like a little tension doing it. It doesn't mean something's wrong. And the reason I'm saying this is because you might either think, okay, I'm doing it wrong, or actually this isn't good for me. It's making me more tense, you know? Um, and it may be a practice that you actually ultimately decide you don't want to do. It doesn't, doesn't jive with you and that's fine. Everyone needs to decide for themselves what the right practice is for them, okay? So that is a constant on this Tuesday nights here. But don't assume that simply because it feels effortful and even maybe produce a bit of tension in the body and the mind at first, that it's not for you. You wouldn't say that if you found like, you know, playing a certain piano phrase hard at first or playing the piano period hard at first, right? It's natural. And part of the practice, like the practice of any skill is figuring out how to do it with no extra effort, right? How do you do it without adding any effort that isn't necessary? So there will be effort, but not the kind of effort that will necessarily produce tension. Okay, so that's one thing I'll say. So the other though is that you may actually feel tension that's coming from a slightly different place, which is that the mind wants to think. And this is a practice that actually takes up more of the mind's bandwidth that it wants to use for thinking. It's also one of the reasons why this practice is good. But the mind wants to think. The ego wants to do its thing. And so this practice, because it's more explicitly pulling energy away from the part of our minds that wants to be absorbed in thinking, may produce resistance which will show up as a certain kind of tension or anxiety. Like, you know, like, cause actually realize like, I actually like thinking. And I think until you come to the insight that you actually like to think, I think you, you really, you, you, you have, that's something that has to come as you start practicing, right? Like we come to practice because we say like, you know, I, I, I'm tired of thinking. I wanna, I wanna be free of a mind. And one of the first things you learn um, when you start practicing, actually, no, I like it a lot. And, you know, <laughs> I want to just do this. I want to be thinking, you know, and then you move through that, right? Because you still realize that, yes, part of me wants to, but part of me also wants to maybe get more drunk than I should or do other things that aren't so good for me, either, you know? And so um, it produces suffering, right? Um, and the a last thing I'll um, maybe I'll add is like the thinking that's unconscious, that's below the level of consciousness. 
some of it's held in the body, you know? And so um, what you'll start to feel is like, and that's how, where the multitasking comes. It's interesting. It's like, you know, you, you almost like you're not thinking up here. You don't hear the thoughts because actually it's just like, you're carrying that thought in the tension in your chest. You know, you're carrying it in your shoulder. And one of the things this practice will do is start to make you realize you know, as you try to count one and you start to feel like this tension that wants to interfere with the count, you know? And those are also really good, give you good insights into, okay, where am I carrying my thought patterns? You know, where am I carrying thought, right? Where is it being held in my body? So anyway, there's a lot to learn by doing this. I just touched on some of the basics, but um, um, okay, I think I'll pause there. And it's 829, I'm happy to like, maybe like, because there could be questions. And I just wanna leave like, let's leave five minutes for, for questions before we call it a night. Um, it was a lot more talk than normal, but um, I hope I hope it was at least somewhat useful and interesting. Yeah. I really hi, like. Hi, Smitha. Like, hi, Bernie. I hope you get a nice couple of weeks off. Um, the counting during the breath is super helpful for me because the breathing falling breath is always challenging, but could you just expand a little bit one moment on how it could help with the tension in the body? I understand that that could be stored thinking and I, I get it, I think, but could that counting the breath, so what do you do when you notice the tension and you're counting? Actually, just keep going back to the count. Just keep, um, so actually it's like, it's, that's where this is like really, super simple. Just go back to the breath, go back to the count. Don't worry. Like, it's like, you can then do another practice, like a body scan or straight up mindfulness practice where you're kind of noting sensations over places, even noting thoughts that come up. Actually that, that maybe I shouldn't even said that last bit about the body. Cause it, it, it opens up a whole nother terrain, but it's partly what I meant by multitasking. It's like, you know, it's like we can do something with our mind and, and think we're focused there because actually a lot of the other thought processes are happening or almost happening in the body in different places, you know? And so, um, and so I think that's why, anyway, you know what, Smith, let, let, let's put a, put a bracket around that for now. And some other evening I'll expand on that because that's a whole another evening worth of stuff there. Okay. Hi, Bryn. Hi, Bernie. How are you? Good. Good. So I'm, I'm relatively new to this uh, and new to any kind of organized um, practice that comes out of any particular lineage. Uh, and I'm wondering about accidental dozing off because it happens to me. <laughs> and I realized that, you know, there are non-judgmental means of addressing that. And like, you know, maybe my mind just needs a break and I, I could accept that and sort of welcome it and, you know, get back in. And once I come to this kind of thing, but, you know, there's also a bit of like shame and there's weird feelings around falling asleep because, you know, it just feels like I'm, uh, not, uh, not present, you know, for you or not like present for the group. There's all this other stuff. I'm just wondering if there's any kind of like in this set of traditions, some wisdom to share about all of the complex things that arrive around accidental falling asleep with this 
with this kind of practice. The first most important thing to say, Brent, is it's totally normal. You know, and also, <laughs> frankly, like if I wasn't talking at this hour, I'd be falling asleep. I mean, like, I don't even know how you guys can do this. I mean, so, um, so uh, in fact, actually, like, okay, so Ezra leads uh, for a small group of um, on two, uh, Thursday afternoons, 2 p.m., um, a sitting. So for his, at his time, he's in the West Coast. So it's 11 a.m. his time, right? It's like, he's fresh. It's me. It's like an hour after lunch. I always fall asleep during that sitting. And, um, and he notices, <laughs> he says, Bernie, you're looking drunk. <laughs> and so, um, so anyway, um, so what I would say is like, this is just a, these evenings are like a time hopefully to absorb a little bit of um, some information, maybe like a, even the guy when it's just got a meditation, it's like a little tip that you know, and either you pick it up because you're awake enough to pick it up or you can listen to it, you know, again later. And then just find a different time of day. This is not the time of day anyone should be sitting, honestly, <laughs> you know, like an hour after dinner, right? I mean, this is like, this is not good. Um, so not only do I not judge you, I would be with you. I'm, I'm amazed you're even here on the call. <laughs> so, um, so I hope that sounds about as unjudgmental as possible. And then the other practice that I was talking with, um, you know, like noting, like having a thought, I'm embarrassed. Have, because there may be, you know, so not for the kind of practice we're doing tonight, but for the kind of normal practice where you're, you know, where the breath and sounds and you, and you note, you label thoughts, like thinking, thinking, or having a thought, I'm, I'm terrible, or I'm, I'm embarrassing myself, or other people are judging me. That's where you start to get into that stuff. You know, and you start to, and, and sort of actually see the embarrassment, the shame as an opportunity. Because, um, you know, I have a feeling some other people fall asleep and don't feel any embarrassment or shame while some other people do. And so it's interesting. It's like, why would you feel shame at all? Like, are there other times, other settings where you feel it's probably connected to ways in which you might feel some shame or embarrassment in other contexts. And so it's just an interesting opportunity to explore that part of your sort of ego makeup. But tonight, 7.30 PM, please, you deserve points just for being here. So, so does that help? Yeah, yeah, that helps a lot. Okay, um, cool. I can see that it is connected to some other some other things and a feeling of, uh, you know, uh, embarrassment for having checked out when you really don't want to have checked out. You know, in certain scenarios like with work and all of this, sure. right? No, that, yeah. that's the cool thing about practice. It's all the stuff that comes up is connected to other things. Usually, it's like a laboratory. And you're, you get to see all your shit, right? Yeah. Um. I guess just maybe one, any, is there one more um, question? Okay. So I really hope people got the message. This isn't radically new. This is just a kind of refinement and maybe a little slightly higher emphasis on concentration, but I think it might really kind of just give a little boost to the intensity of people's practice. I also think that it's especially good if you're not doing retreats, you know, like, because you can do straight, you can get so much concentration during retreats and carry that for like months. But I think one of the reasons it's coming up for me is because it's been so long since I've done a retreat. I'm actually realizing, oh yeah, there's some kind of intensity that's really waning and maybe upping the concentration during the day, this kind of practice might help with that. Um, so anyway, okay. Um, can we sit together for like 30 seconds? You know, if you can, and, um, and if, you, if you need to nod off, go for it. <laughs> And then we'll say goodnight. <clears throat> and I won't offer any guidance for this. Just please do whatever practice feels good to you for just this 30 to 60 seconds.
Okay. Wonderful to see you all. Good night, everybody. I'll see you, some of you in a, in a few weeks, okay? I'll, mm. Much gratitude. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bernie. Thank Thanks. you, guys. Bernie, have a safe trip. Thanks, Audrey. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.